Our guest today is Chaitanya Gokhale. He's a research group leader in theoretical eco-evolutionary dynamics at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology. His lab uses theoretical biology to elucidate the associations and interactions that power emergent complexity at multiple scales. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I wanted to start by discussing your work on the dynamics of gene drives. So firstly, I wanted to ask, what is a gene drive? Well, even before I go there, first of all, I have to thank you for actually having me on your podcast. I've been, I'm a big fan of your work. So it's really nice to be actually talking to you about that. Um, gene drive, it it has come about to be in the in in the in the public uh, discussions recently in the last few let's say in the last decade actually uh, but I have to say that I mean it's it's a much much older technology actually it's not even a technology before that it's it's just an existing natural fact so um, even before we go to like what gene drive is then I think it would be useful to actually go back all the way to like Mendel. I don't know if the audience might know Mendel, but like Mendel is typically known as like so Gregor Mendel. He was like a um, he 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 was a priest in an abbey, and he was um, working and playing around with some experiments on on peas. He he was a polymath. He also did work in meteorology and whatnot. So it, it, it was really a polymath, and uh, he came up came up with what were known as some of the laws of inheritance in uh, genetics and one of those laws so as to say is of segregation of alleles and that just means that um, so all of us for example right we are diploids organisms so we have two copies of each gene to keep it simple we have two copies of each gene one from our uh, one parent one from the other parent so and they can be they can be different slightly, right? So typically they are known as capital A and small A, for example. And so when when you provide these uh, genes to your offspring, typically one of those copies gets passed on, and the other comes from your partner, right? And that's how you pass on the genes to the offspring. Now, what Mendel found out that if for for in the simplest possible case the probability that the allele which gets passed on is just 50-50. It could be the capital A or the small a. And that was one of the realizations that he got from doing his experiments on peas. Uh, and they came to be known now as the laws. But as we know in biology, not so many laws as such exist. So of course, there are things which trump it. And, um, People already found in the 1950s, like you can look at plants, you can look at animals, like typically the studies were done in rodents, so in mice or in flies, that some of the genes actually get passed on with a higher probability than 50%. So it's not just, men so that's, that's actually known as non-Mendelian inheritance, right? Because it doesn't follow the rules which more or less Mendel set out. Um, so it, it can get passed on with a higher probability than the other allele. Now the thing is, if you release, say, think think about what happens to the population level, then 
then the gene will get propagated into the population more and more because it will be uh, passed on with a higher chance than the other allele. And at some point, the whole population might be made up of individuals who have only that allele. So it doesn't matter what allele you get from your parents, it will be only capital A or small A, let's say, which whichever one, but it will be just one. Now, fast forward to almost this century, and we have different techniques, right, of molecular, for coming from molecular biology, where we can edit things at the genetic level. Now imagine if one can actually construct a mechanism in which you design a gene, and then you put it on such a mechanism such that it gets passed on to the next generation with a very high probability as compared to its copy. Now we have basically come up with this mechanism of spreading things within a population then. That's the idea of gene drive then. So you are having this gene which is driven into the population. And basically in the last decade, like the advent of CRISPR, Cas9, which some people might have heard of, it's um, a precision engineering, let's say, of, of genetics, uh, with which one can actually edit uh, and include such kind of genes within a vector and then spread it into the population. And that's that's the idea, at least, behind gene drive, and that's the technology which um, is still being developed, let's say, because it's not 100% there yet. Right. Okay. Um, well, do all gene drives operate in the same way, or are there different mechanisms? So uh, what, what I what I gave it was a, just a brief overview, right? Mm -hmm. And it was it was a very simplified version. Clearly, um, the thing is, it it is quite uh, there are quite a diverse ways in which um, one can actually engineer these gene drives, or even the ones which exist in nature. They are also they are quite diverse. Um, but if we are talking about the engineered ones, let's say, because that's what I guess uh, might be of interest um, for us for the future discussion, maybe, or for the people. Um, there are typically, they fall in two different categories. One is called as the suppression drive and one is called as a transformation-based drive. And the idea behind those two are like, as the name suggests, suppression. So the idea would be to, you want to release a gene in the population, say, which inhibits the um, reproductive potential or it causes harm to the individual carrying it. And if you spread such kind of a gene in the population, then the population size will decline over time. So you basically suppress the population. And transformation drive is, on the other hand, it's, it, it doesn't cause, cause a damage to the organism, but it changes some of their properties. And let me, I, I think I can make it clear with some examples rather in this case. So the applications which people usually think of for these gene drives are, um, say, disease control. And one of the biggest applications is for uh, controlling and uh, eradicating malaria. And as we, as we know, malaria is transmitted. So if the vector uh, for transmission of malaria is the mosquitoes. So there are a lot of gene drive projects which aim, which are aimed at suppressing the populations of mosquitoes. So if we release a drive which causes harm to the mosquitoes and the mosquito population, then therefore in general, that the population of the mosquitoes will die out over time. That would also mean that you have basically eradicated the transmission of the disease. And that's something which can be tackled with, with suppression drives, or at least that's the idea. Transformation drives, on the other hand, are used to, um, or at least one of the examples which is um, discussed is about 
uh, spreading herbicide or pesticide or rather getting rid of herbicide and pesticide resistance in plants. So if you have insects which can transfer or transmit genes to the plants when they are already crawling on plants. So that if the, we don't want such certain herbs or weeds to grow in the in, on the farm, you can actually infect them with genes which cause them to lose their resistance to herbicides. So then when we put the herbicide again, it will actually act and the weed will die. So here you are not really killing the plant by itself, right? But you are transforming its properties. And that's why the name is called um, transformation drives. So these are most of these different mechanisms of drives, they fall typically in two different categories. And these are the two categories, suppression or um, transformation drives. Yep. Right, okay. And how do the population dynamics differ for these types of drives? Right, and I think that's that's a very crucial question. Actually, that's because because it seems as if it's it's like a golden bullet, right? I mean, mm -hmm. It seems as if like okay, you introduce a mosquito in a mosquito population, and then it will just kind of spread over time in generations, and then it will just uh, suppress the whole population or you release some insects which will spread in the um, farms and they will take care of all the weeds. Well, this works very well, let's say in theory, in a very simplified system and in experimental systems in the labs. But once we are talking about, say, a bit more realistic population dynamics, things get complicated very quickly, right? Because once you want to release something in ecology, you know that ecology is very resilient to changes and one uh, we would need to release a lot of mosquitoes. This is something that we have learned from sterile insect techniques, for example, like uh, which has been used to, to um, control populations of mosquitoes previously as well. Um, and the number of releases is large, which is required. Also, once we have genetically modified an organisms to release to, to transmit this uh, gene into the wild. What about the fitness of this released organism? Is it is it working very well? Is the, are the organisms competitive enough to be integrated into a wild population? This is something which needs to be checked often. And this will drive the, the population dynamics of the gene drive itself, right? Then even though theoretically it can spread in the population, Ecological constraints, such as say, if the population, the wild population just decides to move away, if it migrates away to a different place, it's a complete loss of releasing a gene drive organism into a place where, it, where the population is not going to stay anymore. So I think, uh, so properties of the population, such as migration, demographic characteristics, these need to be taken into account and they together will determine then the population dynamics. So. And that's why the deployment strategies of these gene drives have not been realized yet because there are still so many caveats. Well, these are just the technical and ecological caveats. Of course, there are ethical caveats which one needs to take care of. Because another question which typically comes with the population dynamics is that is the population dynamics going to be constrained within the local region where one wants to um, make the change or will it spread geographically? Or will it also spread species-wide, just go beyond the population and to the whole species? If the species are well connected, if the populations are well connected, then how do we stop the drives? There are also mechanisms of drives which have been designed to control the spread of the drives, but these are all experimental. And 
as soon as one thinks about releasing them in the wild. I think we need better theoretical models, better um, experimental systems, also to test them on a slightly larger scale to make sure that such releases are resilient to um, ecological pressures. And that's something which is still ongoing work. Okay. Right. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of ecological and environmental factors impacting the spread of a gene drive. How can you be sure that every factor has been considered? Um, and does every single one have to be studied like independently? I think this is a brilliant question. And I would say that this is not just pertaining to gene drive in general. This <laughs> <laughs> is for any any human intervention, right? That we are thinking of in an in a in an in a naturally evolving and ecologically driven system. For all our human interventions, I'm not sure that we will be able to capture all possible factors uh, which which might determine the fate of our intervention then in the long run in the system. Some of the things are only apparent in hindsight. <laughs> um, one of the, well, I mean, uh, if, if one has to pick one of the most recent examples, right, we know from the pandemic, like, I mean, how do we control the pandemic? How do we what are all the different ways in which we can uh, think of that we are able to control the spread of a virus? I mean, we can only think of as many that we have experienced and a bit more from our creativity, but evolutionarily, it's very hard to predict the all possible pathways, right? So even for gene drive in that sense, then um, just as with the virus, as it can evolve um, um, ways of escaping our treatments, um, for gene drive, even if you release uh, a gene which is going, say, causing harm to an organism, the organisms themselves can evolve to avoid that particular gene. So, how do we mitigate ourselves against the, yeah, the force of evolution? I mean, that's something which is extremely hard to uh, to think of. But that doesn't mean that we cannot anticipate it. And there are ways in which we anticipate what all the other ways in which things can go wrong and then try to buffer against it. But I would not say that we, are, we would be able to capture all possible factors then. But trying to capture as many as possible, at least the ones which we know of and testing those in, in the lab as well as with um, theoretical models is something that needs to be done before any deployment um, strategies are even thought of. Right. Um, yeah, and I read and I really enjoyed your paper on the effect of mating complexity on gene drive dynamics. Um, so I wanted Thank to start you. by asking, what is um, mating complexity? Right, so one of the ways I mentioned that the gene might not even spread right in the population because individuals can evolve some kind of, um, some ways of avoiding it. And one of the ways that we thought is is about the complex mating systems which do exist in um, in the animals that we want to, for example, say release the tribe in. Um, the reason we chose to think a bit more about mating complexity is because gene drive rests on the fact that there is sexual reproduction which is happening. Right? What we what we we talked about earlier with the how the genes basically are spread into the next generation. There is mating, which is possible between two individuals. And that's where the genes come from two different parents, right? And then they get segregated according to 
number of alleles that they have and the offspring gets the genes for the next generation that compromises comprises the next generation. But that means this sexual reproduction phase is really important. Who the partner is, where the partner is located, what is the pro probability that you will have um, successful mating with an individual, say, with, who carries the drive is something which is extremely important to have. So one of the things that we decided to look within our manuscript was, for example, the spatial orientation of mates. So if not all mates are equally probable, right? Like if there are some people who are living within, say, a certain village, and I decide never to leave that village, then the chances that you will find a partner within that village is much higher than uh, finding a partner which comes from a completely different place, right? Because you're never going to meet that place. So spatial segregation is very important and needs to be considered. And that's what we considered in our study, that what happens if your partners are based on your spatial distance. And given that this kind of structure, population structure exists within animal societies, can we then know where to release the gene drive individual such that to maximize the spread and to minimize the time it takes to spread that gene within the population? Now, such kind of things need to be taken into account because this is now one example in which the details of the mating system matter. Another crucial detail was about what are the different kinds of mating systems which exist within insects, for example, if you want to take care of Drosophila, which is causing havoc on, um, on soft fruit. So all the fruits that get rotten, for example, cherries and peaches, they're being destroyed quite heavily by an invasive species of Drosophila in California. For example, they are really intent on getting rid of it. But then for that, one needs to know how often do Drosophila mate, how often, uh, what, are the, what are the possible number of offsprings that a Drosophila will have, or a, a modified Drosophila can have, so that one can estimate how many of them to release in the first place. So these are the complexities of these mating systems, which sometimes, which somehow need to be taken into account, because the whole concept of drive depends on the sexual reproduction phase. Has mating complexity been addressed in general in the past, or has it kind of been ignored by the field? Well, actually, it is implicit in experimental methods, because in experimental methods, again, the mating just is, happens within the lab environment. And that's actually the thing. So it happens within a lab environment. We don't know how it works, how it might work in a wild setting. And that's why it needs to be tested in an in the theoretical model as well, because I mean we are not going to be doing tests in the wild anytime soon. I hope right. because we, st we are still not clear on the implications of that. But theoretically, this has not been explored in as much detail as one should be looking at before we release such populations. Uh, one of the populations which are of key interest, for example, are rodents. And rodents have very complicated um, family structures, which again need to be um, taken into account before in a theoretical model so that we know how the spread might happen over time and not rather assume that it's just one big, um, well mixed population of rodents, which is usually the assumption in theoretical models. And um, that's something that might happen in lab 
environments because the lab environments are more or less a bit more artificial, right? <laughs> right. Environments. Right. How exactly can you model these things? One can choose different ways of modeling it. So one can use a very coarse grain approach and say work with averages and uh, assuming very large number of populations. And then that makes the mathematics very nice. <laughs> mathematics seems very easy. And then you come up with some very nice and simple rules, which is which has its own value because it provides us with some guidelines at least on proceeding further with um, more complicated models. And more complicated models means then we start actually modeling each and every individual within a population. Now, these things tend to be more computationally complex, but from these general models, which we have, the ones which assume infinite populations and averages, we at least have some guidelines on which directions to look at within these more complicated computational models. So I think a continuum of models in such a way is, is really necessary. So we go from these coarse grain models to a bit more complicated computational models, and then one can even make a spatially explicit computational model where individuals are put separately in space. And this work has been done brilliantly by some people like, like Philip Messer. And those are the kinds of models which then speak much more closely with experimental systems as well. So one can do a collaboration of the results between theory and experiments at that point. Mm -hmm. And such kind of a continuum is extremely necessary, especially for these kind of uh, projects where there is, there is a potential for actually a human intervention. Mm -hmm. Right. And how did you use your models then to study these different areas of mating complexity? So the models which we used, actually we, we used the, let's say the span of these coarse grain model to slightly complicated computational models. So we are not too much far away into the explicitly um, individually based defined models because we are still more interested in trying to understand um, the general principles of mating complexity and how they impact the population dynamics. So we did come up with some simple rules which says that how much that the heterozygosity in the population. And if given that heterozygosity, how many individuals do we need to release them in the population so that we can take, so that the gene drive, gene can actually spread into the population. Now, those are the kinds of results which are useful in going further with more complicated models. And that's where we kind of stopped. But I have to say that the models which we did, did develop they also had a policy making um, component. So the work was done together with um, our funding agency, actually, which is the Bundesamt for Naturschutz, which is the federal agency for nature conservation of Germany. And together with the people who are interested in seeing how these kind of models can help affect policy making, because since gene drive isn't technological applications, many people are interested in proposing this technology to control diseases. And then um, clearly there's a market value associated with it. So when such policies, such technologies are put forth in the market, there needs to be policies in, uh, in place 
to whether accept or decline and on which criteria do we accept and decline such proposals. And that was very useful to work together with policymakers and to understand what are the questions that they are interested in and what are the questions that we can suggest that they address before making any decision on accepting or rejecting any proposals. Right. And I imagine it's best to work with regulatory bodies on this type of work anyways, as it's probably difficult from like their point of view to interpret exactly what a theoretical biologist is saying with regards to policy recommendations. That's that's extremely important or anything. And at least we were very fortunate that the people we met in these regulatory bodies, they were very responsive and very um, interactive. And they really had this curiosity and a genuine drive to know what are the important aspects and what can we contribute. I mean, clearly they have many more <laughs> aspects mm -hmm. to take care of when making the final decision, but they were clearly interested in and appreciated the importance of the work which we presented to them and took part in the study themselves. Right. Would you say that their main issues kind of agreed with what your experiment suggested are the main issues? So um, <clears throat> so we did not want to bias our studies from any particular kind of view because we don't, we, we, we wanted to just present the results that we have and then discuss upon them if this is something if the results are something that the governments can work with or not that is um, that that can be decided together with not just theoretical biologists clearly but with ethicists with conservation scientists with agricultural scientists because the implications of this technology are much larger than a certain group of scientists who would drive coming from a certain discipline. So it was useful to see that at least the interests of all the parties concerned, they did align mm -hmm. in, in knowing what are the details of the process, what are what is going to be the impact of such a, of if ever one we, we plan to have released that what is going to be the impact. And this knowledge, having this knowledge beforehand is valuable. And that was an alignment of interest which we found with, between all the scientists coming from different fields. And that was very motivation. That's great. I really like that this is a good example of how like theoretical biology can actually be used to address actual questions. It's not just like very abstract. No, um, again, like I, I did not want to refer back to the pandemic so much because I guess we've heard it. <laughs> of that <laughs> uh, a lot uh, already over from different podcasts, I guess, as well. But I mean, that really shows like a simple model of epidemiology, right? Which comes from, of course, it's uh, also comes from theoretical biology uh, um, field of it has been has been so influential in, in us deciding that now everyone in the public knows what R naught is and mm -hmm. a quantity which would have been very hard to explain few years before otherwise mm -hmm. and it has been very useful in making um, making good decisions driving good policies um, maybe not individually beneficial of course but at least at the population level some these have been very useful for governments to um, actually come up with directives which are actionable and it's definitely not as abstract as one would think right 
And I wanted to pivot a little to a different area of your work, game dynamics. So what actually is evolutionary game theory? Great, yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the pivot actually is quite natural because evolutionary game theory, as the name suggests itself, it has game theory in it and game theory comes very naturally from economics. Uh, where we were just talking about policy making and uh, mm -hmm. such kind of large scale governmental decision making. I mean, it's not clearly driven just by the biology behind mm -hmm. um, the things that we are talking about, but it's also driven by economics, right? And what game theory does is actually it puts like classical game theory. Uh, it provides a classic uh, provides us a theory of decision making where it assumes that the individuals who are making the decisions are rational actors. Right? Evolutionary game theory, on the other hand, puts a twist on this idea of rational actors making decisions. The concepts and ideas which are seen in evolutionary game theory, they, they, they were already discussed quite a bit earlier in the last century, but they crystallized, let's say, with the works of uh, John Maynard Smith and George Price, um, who applied the concepts from game theory to animal behavior and especially to understanding animal conflict situations. So, for example, why do animals fight each other? It sounds like a very simple question, but um, when you try to think of the details of it, like what are the benefits and costs of fighting, which doesn't lead to any um, say death of an individual. So if they are not fighting to the death, then why why do why are they even investing in displaying this aggression? Um, so the costs and benefits of those need to be evaluated. And evaluating these costs and benefits is something which evolutionary game theory in that sense does very well. Because now you are not just thinking of these actors as acting rationally, but their actions have been optimized by evolution in an evolutionary time scale which guide their behavior, what we see them as now. So in a sense, what evolutionary game theory is actually just doing is trying to put the interactions between different individuals in a social setting. So what I do will depend on if I know what you will be doing, and then I can tune my behavior accordingly. One of the most classic examples of say, in game theory, um, which exemplifies this uh, dilemma, is known as the prisoner's dilemma, where you assume two prisoners who are, well, they are caught, and then the police want to try them for the crimes, and they separate the two prisoners and say that if you rat out the other prisoner, then you can go free. But, and then, then your partner will have to spend time in the jail. Mm -hmm they offered the same deal to both of them. So how do the two prisoners now trust each other? Because if they both keep quiet and actually don't rat each other out, there's a possibility that both of them could go free because then, or at least have a minimal sentence, right? So the question of how does one cooperate with the other individual is, is, is at the heart of such kind of a, like an evolutionary, uh, such kind of a game theoretic problem because there's always the temptation to defect in this case because I don't know what you are going to be doing as a as my partner. So 
it's in my interest to always rat you out so that at least I can go free. But both of them will think the same thing. And then they rat each other out and basically making each other culpable for, for the crime that they have created, the crime that they, they might have committed. So in that way, this exemplifies the dilemma of, of establishing trust, of establishing cooperation in society. So how do we realize cooperation within a society when we don't know how to trust each other? But not just that, but how our actions then depend on what the other individual is doing. Because if I knew you were going to cooperate, then I would be able to cooperate as well. But there is no guarantee of that. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it a very, such an interesting um, question. What evolutionary game theory does is that it says that your actions are not driven just by rational decision-making, but they have been optimized over an evolutionary time in the sense that populations did these decision-makings, individuals did such kind of decision-making before, but then the populations which survived by making the right decisions carried over within their, um, say, a collective behavior, the idea of how to act in such situations so that such kind of behaviors get fixed in populations then. So the behaviors that we see now are kind of exemplary of an evolutionary process. Right. And what kind of biological problems is this reflected in and what can we use? So how can we use evolutionary game theory to answer biological problems? So the reason I like evolutionary game theory, so evolutionary game theory for me actually is like a tool, right? It's, it's a tool within the toolbox of theoretical biology. You can use many different tools like population genetics and evolutionary game theory or coalescence theory, or there are, there are different tools. The reason I kind of like evolutionary game theory or I'm, I'm biased a bit towards it is given its focus on interactions and frequency dependence. Now let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Like, so I, I think we discussed a bit on frequency dependence already. And what I mean by frequency dependence is that if you just imagine two different kinds of individuals in a population, so two different kinds of types of individuals in a population. Again, to give the example from before, let's say there are capital A and small a <laughs> kind of individuals in a population. Um, now, what's the probability that I, as a, say, a small A individual, will interact with an, another individual of the same type of small A? Well, it simply is the what is the frequency of the small A individuals in the population as compared to the large A. Now, if my actions are conditioned on this fraction, if I meet a small A individual, I will act in a certain way. If I meet a large A individual, I act in a different way. That means my actions are frequency dependent. And this is something that we observe quite a bit in natural systems. And game theory is a natural way of including such kind of frequency dependence in, um, in the analysis. And the second part, which I mentioned about interactions. So what are my actions then in that case? If my action is, okay, I'm going to only help individuals which are also small A, or rather it could also be that I'm going to help only individuals which are large A. Then these kind of interactions, so if they are, if, if they are positive, negative, neutral, all these kind of interactions can be captured then within this 
game theoretic framework. And that's why I find that it brings together both this frequency dependence as well as the diversity of interactions that one can have in, in one nice mathematical framework. Right. If you think now of applications of where can you use this, right? Now let's 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 think back about policy making again. Um, just if you're thinking about the Indian scale. Um, about policy making, one of the biggest challenges that we do face right now is also of climate change. And how do governments design their policies, right, for combating climate change? As a government, it would be of interest to do something for the people of the country that they are serving, right? So ideally, it would be great to say that, look, we will provide you with all the things that you need, which would mean in a warming climate, <laughs> uh, provide all possible resources to keep yourself cool and um, making sure everyone gets all the food possible and by investing a lot more locally, right? But that would still mean that as a country, they're investing a lot into carbon production. They will be, they will be investing in in more and more technologies which are actually adding up to global warming. That's good for the people who are within the country, but at the level of interactions with other countries, they need to mitigate such kind of actions with how much of carbon control will they have as compared to say some other countries. So they have to keep two people, two sets of people happy, the ones which are within the country and also between the countries. Now, if you think of this again, in terms of the evolutionary game theoretic arguments, like how do they decide how much resources to allocate towards keeping the local population happy versus actually investing in the future in which you have to reduce the carbon, uh, carbon emissions? Well, that would mean that you don't provide people everything that might need, but you ask people to do sacrifices, right? Um, that's something which is hard to do because then the next time round, would the population elect the same government? <laughs> and then again, that's even a third layer of <laughs> um, considerations or dilemmas, like as we just discussed before, that the government needs to consider. So putting all these interactions, now again, you can think of them as positive and negative interactions between these different fractions of people and putting them all together, one can construct a game in which how the governments should then act in different uh, spheres of influence that they have. That's just at the level of humans, right? But as I said, like I like evolutionary game theory because it focuses on these frequency dependence and interactions. It did not really say which level we are talking about. It can even go like to the level of like just forget about human societies and all classic predator-prey dynamics in animal societies. Right, like if I know that there is going to be a, a leopard out right now, it will help me as a prey animal decide whether I should go foraging out or not. So given on these probabilities of knowing that a predator exists, it conditions my behavior on whether I should go out or not. Now this translates very well to classical predator-prey dynamics. And, but here we have put them into an evolutionary strategies, like do I forage or not forage for food right now? 
In a similar way, the predator could do a similar calculation, saying that, okay, if I hide in the grass, what's the probability that the prey will come out to forage or not? <laughs> so you can see that you can apply the similar kind of logic at, at a completely different level. And one can go even further to um, at the level of the microbes, where there's a massive amount of work which is being done in social evolution in microbes, where there's questions about cheating systems within microbial um, uh, colonies in which say I need a certain resource from the environment and I invest in a genetic mechanism which allows me to break down the external resource and then ingest it. So if you are my neighboring cell, sorry I'm anthropomorphizing cells here, <laughs> female cells, but this is just for the sake of exposition. But if you are a neighboring cell from me, and if I have already invested in this machinery for breaking down this external resource, there is no need for you to invent this machinery again, right? I will break down the resource and you can just pick it up before I eat it. So those you would call as the cheating cells. So that then the question is, how would a colony survive if there are such cheating cells? So what is the appropriate fraction, say, which allows for a mechanism to coexist, such kind of mechanisms to coexist along with such cheaters in bacterial colonies. So one can also use similar kind of game theoretic arguments even at the level of microbes. And one can actually go further to the levels of chemicals. So mm -hmm. that's the beauty I find of evolutionary game theory that it it does, it is a bit abstract, but you can still construct actual useful um, mathematical models out of it. Mm -hmm. Right. And in the examples, we kind of discussed um, like individual strategies or individual games. But for example, in like a microbial community, there's lots of different things going on. Can you study just the individual games and then combine them to capture the complexity? Or does a different approach have to be taken? Actually, this is a this is a fantastic question because uh, this is something that um, I've been thinking of for for almost now more than a decade, <laughs> and uh, we have we have within the group. So at least we have we have pushed in this direction quite a bit. So there are two two different ways in which one can go forth. I mean, as 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 we know in scientific pursuits, I mean it's it's easy to make things more complex. It's the simple things which are hard. <laughs> uh, but complexity in this case is, I would say, required because now with the information that we have in, about the systems that we want to study, we know a lot more than uh, we knew before. And we, need, we, we can take into account this complexity. And the way we have taken into account this complexity is in two ways. One in which you increase the number of players and another is in which you increase the number of games itself that they are playing. Now, I, I, I try to explain this a bit more. Um, the first way would be to increase the number of players. And what that means is, if, uh, if you look, think about the example that we talked about before, about the prisoners, right? I mean, the, I mentioned two different prisoners, but what if what happens if there was a gang of prisoners, right? What if there was a gang which did a robbery and now you have to interrogate each one of them separately right so now the dynamics changes a bit because it might depend on how many of those 
prisoners rat each other out. That might depend on how many of them do you trust. In the same way, now, if you look at the level of the microbes, just exactly as you said, it's not just one microbe next to each other, right? It's not, and they are not just going to be dealing this in a pairwise manner. There are billions of them around. And if they are going to be working in this nonlinear fashion, because that's what these number of players adds to the system, it adds nonlinearity, increases rather the degree of nonlinearity in the system, then the number of ways in which they can coexist, for example, together actually also increases. So it's not always an issue, but actually what we did find is that if you increase the number of players within this kind of a game, then actually you also increase the possibilities in which you they can coexist in different proportions within a population. But that's just one way of increasing. As I mentioned, another way of increasing is increasing the number of games. And what do I mean by that? And uh, this was actually some of the work which was done uh, by Dr. Vandana Venkateshwaran. She was a PhD student within our group. Uh, now she's in Illinois. Um, what she worked on was what happens if you don't play just one particular game, but you're a part of multiple games at the same time. Uh, a brilliant example, which she loves to <laughs> discuss, is about lionesses. So when lionesses go on checking the territory, of checking the periphery of their territory to make sure that everything is safe, they typically go around and in a line, one following the other, and they check out the whole territory to make sure that there are no external threats. They usually go around in the line in which the order of the females, like who is in front and who is in the back, is more or less always the same. And the issue is that the one who is in front is always going to be facing the maximal threat. Because if there is someone, some aggressor, that's the female that is going to be attacked, the first. And then the question was like, if they know that the one who is in front is going to face the maximal threat, why don't they kind of sanction the ones who are constantly lagging behind and not taking their turn, right? Or taking the risk equally. Why isn't the risk equally spread? And this was a question that was nagging Vandana quite a bit and what she observed after doing a lot of literature reading is that, ah, there is a possibility that the females who are actually lagging behind, they are doing a different job within the pride of lionesses. They might be the ones who are actually caring for the young because what lionesses also do is cooperative breeding. So all the cubs are raised by all the females. And if they are taking a bigger role in the cooperative breeding than they are in the defense, then it's fine, actually. So then the jobs are balanced out. So one cannot just focus on this one particular, let's say, game of territorial defense, but one needs to take into account also this other game of cooperative breeding. And once you put an individual in context of these two different roles that they might be playing, maybe their costs and benefits balance out. And this gives rise to a more complicated version of games and of the analysis, that's for sure. But it also provides us a more wholesome picture of when we look at individuals. And I think that is extremely insightful and uh, which has been not studied as much in evolutionary game theory. And I, I'm, I'm really excited about these directions and going further because 
once you think about this, not just now we talked about the hunting example, but now you can also think of these examples exactly at the scale of, again, societies and also at the scale of microbes, right? Where individuals in both these cases are involved in so many different kinds of interactions at the same time. That how do we take into account these, um, the fitness values basically, which you get from these interactions into your own um, reproduction in the end. That's something which might be an exciting avenue of future research. Yeah. Is there a relationship between the number of players and the number of games? Kind of, it would make sense if, I guess, there's a larger population, there's more opportunity to divide up the labor. That's, that's actually an interesting question. So we did find uh, there to be a relationship between the number of players and the number of strategies. So mm -hmm. by strategies, I meant like earlier we discussed like individuals of two types, right? Small A, big A, and those are strategies in the population. Now, if you have many such strategies, A, B, C, D, um, and a large number of players, we did find that there is a number, there is a relationship between how many coexistence points one can find, maybe stable or unstable, but how many coexistence points one can find. If there are D number of players and N number of such strategies, we have shown that there will be D minus one raised to the power of N minus one mm -hmm. number of possible solutions in which all of these different strategies, different N strategies can coexist. A similar relationship with the number of games is not really known yet. That's a very good question, I think. <laughs> I think I will think a bit more about that and maybe I'll also bug Vandana a bit more. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, of course. Um, and yeah, how can you experimentally validate these kinds of models that you build based on evolutionary game theory? In the biological realm, mm -hmm. um, validating these experiments is extremely hard because <laughs> one of the tools which we use when writing down such games is a payoff matrix. What a payoff matrix simply says is that if I am playing, say, strategy small a, and if you are playing strategy small a, then what do I get? Then I write, write that down. Then I do the same thing again, saying that if I am playing small a and you are playing large a, then what do I get? I write that down as well. Then I go for the other possible combinations. If I am playing a large A and you are playing small A, what do I get? And the last combination, which I am playing a large A and you are also playing a large A, then what do I get? So now we get, we have four different values, right? So we can write them down in a square and that's the matrix. And this is the object that typically you work with in evolutionary game theory because you want to calculate the inequalities between what you get when you play a certain strategy versus what you would play when you get a different strategy, play a different strategy. Now, experimentally, to validate our results, we would need to get a values. We need to get these values mm -hmm. from, from an experimental system. Um, so currently, I'm sitting at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology. Um, and one of the previous directors here, Manfred Melinsky, he designed a beautiful experiment in sticklebacks, um, 
what sticklebacks do is predatory inspection in which they go towards a predator. Typically, it's a pike fish. They go towards that predator, actually, in pairs of two to see if the predator is a hungry state or a satiated state. Because if the predator is in a hungry state, maybe they don't want to hang around there. And they, they, they need to go somewhere else to forage again, just exactly as we discussed earlier about the foraging example. But if the predator is in a satiated state, then the predator doesn't attack and they can they are free to forage in this current location where they are. But it's hard to know that, right? Unless you go very close. And if you're going there to inspect the predator in pairs of two, how do you know that your partner is coming with you or not? And Professor Milinsky, when at that time he came up with an ingenious way of finding out if the sticklebacks that are approaching the predator, are they checking what their partner is doing or not? So he, he put a mirror next to the sticklebacks, which was put at an angle. So the stickleback could see its reflection, which it thinks of it as a different fish. But since the mirror was at an angle, the other fish, so-called, would be either lagging behind or would be a bit in front. So then the stickleback thinks that the its partner is it's either coming with it or it's moving a bit in front or it's lagging behind. And using this, the lagging behind would be a defector strategy. The moving in front would be a cooperative strategy. Right? And with this kind of setup, he was able to measure three of the four values of the payoff matrix. <laughs> but it was still hard to get the full result. And until we know the full, then it's a bit hard. I mean, this experiment has been done again and again, and it's 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 not extremely clear if this kind of pattern still holds. But I I think that the way of get whatever the point which I want to make is that designing it, such experiments and trying to get to these payoff values is extremely hard. Mm -hmm. What is a bit more possible to do right now is actually look at uh, behavioral economics and the experiments which are run in behavioral economics, and also to look at long-term cultural data, and then to infer rather such values from what people have, how people act in say given situations, in which you present them with games such as that of the prisoner's dilemma, and then you see how the people act. So we actually get a better understanding of how people say switch between strategies. And that's something which is possible from behavioral experiments. But uh, designing such experiments in biological systems with animals is, is quite hard. Excellent work has been done by um, um, Redouan Shari, who is in Switzerland, who also works on cleaner fish and grasse models. And some of the work which comes out from the lab is brilliant. So maybe that's something to be um, looked at. Also, Sarah Brosnan has been working on capuchin monkeys and about the sociality and how they look at fairness and unequal treatment is something which is definitely worth seeing because they have set up excellent, um, they have come up with excellent uh, experimental setups, which is, I feel, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the hardest thing to do in these studies. For sure. 
is it absolutely like necessary to have like quantitative validation of a model or could you use a model to generate like qualitative predictions and then would that be easier to validate experimentally i i completely agree with you actually on this because um qualitative assessment still provides so much value um, that we at least know the general directions the trends in which um, some of the our, our our theories are pointing towards but doing a full quantitative assessment is extremely hard because we do not know what exactly are the individuals maximizing and given that it's 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 really hard to put a numeric value onto the in, in the payoff matrices, as I said. But what is useful to know is the direction of selection. If one value is larger than the other, that, that already provides so much information than knowing what exactly is that value. Right. Yeah, and leading on from evolutionary multiplayer games and game dynamics. Um, I noticed you have some work on mutualism as well and complexity and mutualism. Um, so what interested you to pursue that direction of research? Right, um, actually, so, the, so all these themes do get connected in a certain way. So we did talk about interactions, right? And it just happens like one of my favorite interactions to study further on is, is happen is is a positive interactions which are mutualistic species. So when one helps the other and the other helps um, the one back, and such kind of interactions have also been a puzzle. Because why do species and help each other in the way that they do? Then is it obligate? So are they locked in such kind of relationships so that they cannot get out of it? Or is it still facultative so that they could live without the partner, but then why do they still do it? And this is something which is extremely fascinating, in my opinion, because there are some of some mutualisms in which we observe in the wild, which has lived, which are there for millennia. Um, but like one of the examples which does come to mind is of corals and dinoflagellates, the symbiosis between them, or of um, Vibrio system in squid, where the vibrio are taken or um, into the squid system, uh, by the squid actually and ingested, and then not as food, but they are actually cultivated. Let's say within the light organ of the squid, and they are expelled again in, in the morning, and this keeps on happening daily. Um, so some of these mutualisms are just so fascinating, but they need their begging, I would say, for an explanation of why and how they evolved such intricate dependencies on with each other. Uh, this is something which is not extremely surprising if you think about the connectedness of life that we have. Like we are full of micro, our microbiome is, is, is full of organisms which are both beneficial as well as will, can are fully capable of destroying us at any moment. But somehow there is a homeostasis between our interactions between the um, between our microbiome and our cells, and is this is this um, a peaceful coexistence or is it a constant battle? That's something which <laughs> uh, really excites me to understand 
much more detail. And then I try to use the machinery, for example, of evolutionary game theory or of population genetics to understand such kind of behaviors and especially then this mutualistic behavior in them. Right. Given that you noted that there's many examples of mutualism in nature, would you say it evolves easily or is it just due to the sheer frequency of interactions between different species? Actually, the question that you asked actually goes to the heart of what I meant by this puzzle mm-hmm. of, of mutualism and how does it evolve rather in the first place. There is there's brilliant work which is being done by Christian Kost here in Germany and his group uh, on the evolution of such mutualisms and interdependencies um, between species. The big question, if I connect it back again to the game theoretic uh, arguments, as well as what we discussed before, is about cheating. Because if you have a mutualistic setting, then what stops an individual of a species then to not provide the benefits, but just take the benefits from the other species. And this question of cheating has plagued the field also for quite a long time. How does one evolutionarily avoid the evolution of such cheats? Or is there an ecological mechanism by which we can also get rid of such cheating behavior? And does the cheating behavior always need to be extremely beneficial or are there maybe also some costs actually involved in cheating which actually allow for such cheating mechanisms to even not appear in the first place? Because are we again looking at only one aspect just as we discussed with this multiple games point of view? Are we focusing too much on only one aspect and then ignoring some other costs which these cheats might be paying? And these are the questions that need much more um, exploration still and that's something that we are doing also theoretically as well as uh, with my long-term collaborator uh, Jai Denton from Monash University um, in Australia so we are also making use of synthetic biology to ask some of these uh, questions but in a engineered yeast system. Right in what way can you engineer mutualism? Right. So as I mentioned, like uh, with the work by Christian Cost, they have actually evolved mutualistic systems in their lab. As opposed to that, what we have done is we have engineered interdependencies in the yeast uh, system that we are using. Now, this work stems from the previous work, which has already been done by Wenning Shu and Andrew Murray. And uh, they have developed uh, yeast systems also, which are interdependent. Now, what I mean by that is yeast, which is, you can think of that as the baker's yeast, the one which you use to rise the floor (laughs) for making bread. Um, um, They need nutrients to live, but they can also produce some of these necessary nutrients by themselves. What we have engineered is to block out some of the pathways in which they can produce some of the nutrients. So if one of the yeast types produces nutrient A, but it lacks nutrient B, and then we generate another yeast type which produces nutrient B, but lacks nutrient A. Now these yeast species, they would not be able to survive by themselves. But if you put them together, then they can produce 
both the nutrients, which the, uh, the other species can use. And then you have basically engineered an interdependency between these two species. And these are the engineered uh, types that we have been using, but what we have further extended it to include not just two, but four different um, interdependencies. So there are four different nutrients that the yeast need. Now, if you think of four different nutrients, immediately the number of combinations that one can have explodes because then I can provide say three of the nutrients, but I lack one. And you could provide, say, maybe only two of the nutrients, but lack the other two. So in total, there are 16 different possible combinations. The one which lacks everything, the one which can produce everything, and everything in between. So if you mix and match now individuals which come from these kind of different combinations of producing and non-producing yeast strains, can we construct communities which are stable, which are following but a certain ecological process. Because the idea is what ecological processes then can select for such mutualistic communities. So our question is slightly different than, for example, what Christian was working on. He was working on the question of the evolution of such mutualistic systems, whether, whereas we ask what are the ecological constraints which are necessary to be adhered to so that such mutualistic systems can actually then persist in nature. And that's why we use the engineered systems for. Mm, I see. Is there theoretical work that's been done on the ecological constraints of mutualism? So this is something which is extremely new, at least as far as we know, for um, the ecological constraints. Uh, Experimentally and empirically, there has been a lot of work which does exist, which has used the ecological constraints, but not in an explicit manner. So if the work has been done in, say, in a laboratory, the ecological constraints with, of the laboratory need to be taken into account. If it's observational work, then we do not really know what exact factors of ecology would be important just as we discussed before, because ecology is so varied and so high dimensional, we do not know exactly which part of the ecology will be the de determining part which maintains the mutualism in the long run. And this is precisely what we want to, wanted to address. So our recent work combines both experimental as well as theoretical models, which shows which of the ecological processes. And in particular, we focus on a cycling mechanism how ecological cycles of say tidal rhythms are, are necessary for mixing and regenerating groups in which you form collectives which can then sustain for much longer periods of time and then can take into account these ecological cycles themselves. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones which will then persist for long periods of time. Right, okay, that's really interesting. Um, but to zoom out a little bit and ask some more general questions, uh, how did you get into this field and theoretical biology in the first place? Uh, thanks. Thanks for asking this question, actually, because um, people usually just otherwise assume that I come from a mathematical background or, <laughs> or a quantitative background. But actually, I did zoology before. 
and um, did biotechnology as as for my masters. Uh, but then I always had a keen interest in mathematics, and I kept on studying mathematics on the side wherever possible. And I also did projects in biophysics, which helped keep my interest alive. Um, what I learned actually over um, my studies was that, yeah, indeed, biology is extremely messy. That's for sure, because each system, come, one can delve into the details of each particular system and spend a lifetime understanding it. Um, this is definitely true, but somehow I felt that was in not very satisfying for my own personal <laughs> reasons to, to understand the complexity of the world around me. So experimental biology, for example, it, it goes into details of, of particular model systems. That's why we use these model organisms and to get to, and it, it tries to get into the details of the systems to understand what are the rules again, which work uh, for that particular model systems. And then ca can we try to extrapolate from there a bit. Um, so the two systems typically, or the results that we get at least, they seem to be a bit more idiosyncratic to the systems under study. Um, I found that theoretical biology on the other hand, it also does its own simplifications, of course, um, because it does not then go into the details of each particular system, I would say, but tries to understand what are the commonalities or what are even also the differences sometimes between different systems and how can they be put together to give us a better understanding of the processes and the mechanisms that drive rather the complexity of life that we see around us. And for me, that was personally a much more satisfying um, quest. And that's the reason I decided to, um, at some point, devote a bit more attention to the theory part rather than to the experimental part. Although I try to dabble a bit with the help of great collaborators into doing a bit more experimental work as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, do you have advice for biologists who are trying to learn quantitative skills? Oh, yes. I mean, I guess in, in the short answer would be yes. Then I mean, I would highly recommend that you do get quantitative skills as soon as possible, wherever you get a chance. Um, a longer answer is why would you rather? And the need for that is even more, I would say now, rather than it was even, even a decade before. Because just the amount of data that we are getting now is enough for careers to be made without even stepping into the lab for a while. The reason for that is that the throughput of the technologies that we use to, to, to design the experiments, to analyze the experiments is so massive that we have a lot of data which needs to be analyzed. There is a lot more to be, to be, to be analyzed and to be understood from the data. So there is one thing about analyzing data, but then you have to spend much more time on understanding what that data means. And to get to those points, one really needs 
quantitative um, skills in how to manipulate uh, the data in the right way so that we are seeing what we want uh, to be very clear picture, unbiased picture of what that data is showing, trying to show us. Also, extra abstracting out from that data is also extremely important because one would then need to know what are the quantities that one actually can abstract out and what are the quantities that we cannot avoid taking into account when we finally want to build the bigger picture about the processes and the mechanisms. And for that, I believe a quantitative way of thinking already helps a bit. I have to say that I would have also preferred when I was studying in my bachelor's or master's to have dedicated courses on more quantitative studies at that point, which uh, unfortunately due to um, me choosing biology, it just didn't have that in the syllabus as much as I would have liked. So I had to do that externally a bit. But if you do have the chances, I would recommend the audience to take the opportunity wherever possible. Yeah. And do you think that theoretical biologists and experimental biologists collaborate well? Do they listen to each other well? Or is there still some miscommunication? I would not say that they do not collaborate well at all. Um, I definitely think that there is actually much more collaboration happening than as 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 we um, see actually from uh, quite some recent works, which are always a mixture of theory and experiments put together. But many times these theory and experiments are not just put together to, for example, to explain the data or such. More and more experimentalists are also open to the idea that the theory needs to be developed already together and sometimes even before so that we understand why we are doing the experiments. I mean, we perpetually know the cycle in which the scientific um, scientific method develops, right? We have we have some observations. We have we built some hypotheses based on those observations. At that point, building the hypotheses, it's extremely important that those hypotheses are logical. That's where the one of the first uses of the theoretical biology comes into play, where you build a logical hypothesis, which leads to a very good experimental test then. Then the experiments would need to be tested together, together with this hypothesis in mind. And then once we get the experiment, then we move to the analytical part of analyzing the data, which might also require a bit more of theory, which is more statistics-based. And to try to understand what we have learned from the experiments, which will inform which will be basically the observations that we get again, and we reform and refine further rather the hypothesis, which again goes back. So we, so we have this intertwined development of both experiments and theory. And it, it, it's a presumption that experimentalists only kind of are looking at, for example, okay, what can the theory predict? And can they predict the data or something like that? But I, I do not think, at least in my experience, I've had the opportunity of working with some brilliant um, experimentalists who were also involved in designing experiments to test the hypotheses or rather even the assumptions of the hypotheses, which is extremely valuable 
to check if even the hypotheses that we are making do they even make sense or do we do the do the assumptions that are going into those hypotheses do they make sense and many and many many more experimentalists are open to such ideas and i think this is wonderful because for the whole field to proceed because it's not just focused on predicting data and making good predictions but trying to advance the theories themselves because that will provide us with even more questions as we are always looking for for <laughs> developing better experiments and better theories mm -hmm. right and finally do you have any general advice for aspiring scientists yeah, i would i would definitely recommend to read widely because um so many disciplines are working together at the same time now to address some of the pressing questions that we face. And to be able to understand what each one of us is saying, we need to have an understanding of each other's languages across disciplines. And for that, the only way at least I found to be very useful was to read widely. So not just read only from one's own discipline, but to take an effort to read something which is slightly maybe different and off to a tangent than one's current research interests, but somehow that provides an, an, a window or into how scientists from other disciplines are thinking about some problems which are very similar to what you, one might be dealing with. An example for this, again, going back to um, either climate change or even for uh, food production now how to optimize food production. I mean, you have to talk to agricultural scientists, you have to talk to people working in um, biological control theory, but you have to talk to people who are working on classical evolutionary biology, people working in ecological modeling and climate scientists at the same time. And they all might be using the same words, but they might mean different things, or they might be using some words which you don't even know. <laughs> and I think for that, it, it it's extremely useful to have a wide reading, readership, and a wider base of literature. And that I find to be more and more useful in my own career right now. And I hope that um, people have time to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was lovely to speak to you. Uh, the pleasure was all mine. Thanks a lot for the excellent questions. <laughs>